General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, this is the Sunday morning session of the 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Henry B. Eyring, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Sunday morning session of the 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Thomas S. Monson, who presides at the conference, has asked that I conduct this session. We extend our greetings and blessings to those of you who are participating in these proceedings throughout the world by radio, television, the Internet, or satellite transmission. We acknowledge with appreciation the general authorities and the general officers who are in attendance this morning. The music for this session will be provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir under the direction of Mac Wilberg, with Andrew Unsworth and Clay Christiansen at the organ. The choir opened this meeting with Let Zion in Her Beauty Rise and will now favor us with The Morning Breaks. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Anthony D. Perkins of the Seventy, and the choir will sing, I Will Follow God's Plan.
Our Father who art in heaven, we are grateful to be gathered here this day. We are grateful for the restoration of the gospel that the morning has broken. We are grateful that thou didst show thyself and thy son to thy prophet Joseph Smith, and the gospel has been restored in its fullness. We're grateful for angels who came from heaven to restore priesthood keys and for the truth that came from the Book of Mormon out of the earth to bear witness of thy Son and his atonement. Today, millions of thy children are gathered here and in homes and meeting houses across the world to hear the pleasing word of God. We pray that thou would bless and strengthen thy prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, as thou didst strengthen King Benjamin in days of old to deliver his message to us today. May our hearts be changed. May we, too, have no more desire to do evil but to do good continually. We invite thy Spirit to be with us here this day, that those whose faith may be wavering will be strengthened, those with questions may have answers, those whose hearts are broken may feel healing come into their lives. We ask for a blessing of a perfect brightness of hope through the Atonement of thy Son to come into each heart this day. We pray in his holy name, even the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It will now be our privilege to hear from our prophet, President Thomas S. Monson. After President Monson's remarks, the choir will sing, You Can Make the Pathway Bright. We will then be pleased to hear from Sister Bonnie L. Oscarson, Young Women General President. She will be followed by 
Bishop W. Christopher Waddell of the presiding bishopric, President Watson. Brothers and sisters, before I begin my formal message today, I'd like to announce four new temples which in coming months and years will be built in the following locations. Quito, Ecuador. Araya, Zimbabwe. Burem, Brazil. And a second temple in Lima, Peru. When I became a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1963, there were twelve operating temples in the entire Church. With the dedication of the Pro City Temple two weeks ago, there are now 150 temples in operation throughout the world. How grateful we are for the blessings we receive in these holy houses. Now, brothers and sisters, I wish to express my gratitude for the opportunity to share a few thoughts with you this morning. I've been thinking recently about choices. It's been said that the door of history turns on small hinges, and so do people's lives. The choices we make determine our destiny. When we left our premortal existence and entered mortality, we brought with us the gift of agency. Our goal is to obtain celestial glory, and the choices we make will in large part determine whether or not we reach our goal. Most of you are familiar with Alice and Lewis Carroll's classic novel, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. You remember that she comes to a crossroads with two paths before her, each stretching onward, but in opposite directions. As she contemplates which way to turn, she's confronted by the Chinese cat, of whom Alice asks, Which path shall I follow? The cat answers, That depends where you want to go. If you do not know where you want to go, it doesn't matter which path you take. Unlike Alice, we know where we want to go, and it does matter which way we go. For the path we follow in this life leads to our destination in the next life. May we choose to build up within ourselves a great and powerful faith, which will be our most effective defense against the designs of the adversary, a real faith, a kind of faith which will sustain us and will bolster our desire to choose the right. Without such faith, we go nowhere. With it, we can accomplish our goals. Although it's imperative that we choose wisely, There are times, yes, there are, when we make foolish choices. The gift of repentance provided by our Savior enables us to correct our course settings, that we might return to the path which will lead us to that celestial glory we seek. May we maintain the courage to defy the consensus. May we ever choose the harder right instead of the easier, wrong. As we contemplate the decisions we make in our lives each day, whether to make this choice or that, if we choose Christ, we will have made the correct choice. That this may ever be so is my heartfelt and humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.
On March 30th, just one year ago, little two-year-old Ethan Karnaseka from American Fork, Utah, was admitted to the hospital with pneumonia and fluid around his lungs. Two days later, his condition had become so serious that he needed to be flown by helicopter to Primary Children's Hospital in Salt Lake City. His worried mother, Michelle, was allowed to ride in the front seat and accompany her son. She was given a headset so she could communicate with the others in the helicopter. She could hear the medics working on her sick little boy. And being a pediatric nurse herself, Michelle knew enough to understand that Ethan was in serious trouble. In this critical moment, Michelle noticed they were flying directly over the Draper, Utah Temple. From the air, she looked out across the valley and could also see the Jordan River Temple and the Ochre Mountain Temple, and even the Salt Lake Temple in the distance. The thought came into her mind, Do you believe it or not? She says of this experience, I had learned about the blessings of the Temple and that families are forever in primary and in young women. I shared the message on families to the good people of Mexico on my mission. I was sealed to my eternal companion for time and all eternity in the temple. I taught lessons about families as a young women leader, and I shared stories about forever families with my children in family home evening. I knew it, but did I believe it? My answer came as quickly as the question popped into my head. The Spirit confirmed to my heart and mind the answer I already knew. I did believe it. At that moment, I poured out my heart in prayer to my Heavenly Father, thanking Him for the knowledge and belief I had that families truly are forever. I thanked Him for His Son, Jesus Christ, who made it all possible. I thanked Him for my son, and I let Heavenly Father know if He needed to bring my little Ethan to His heavenly home, it was okay. I trusted in my Heavenly Father completely, and I knew I would see Ethan again. I was so grateful that in a crisis moment I had the knowledge and the belief that the gospel was true. I had peace. 
Ethan spent many weeks in the hospital receiving expert medical care. The prayers, fasting, and faith of loved ones combined with that care allowed him to leave the hospital and return home to be with his family. He is healthy and well today. This defining moment for Michelle confirmed to her that what she had been taught all of her life was more than just words. It is true. Do we sometimes become so accustomed to the blessings we have been given as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we fail to fully comprehend the miracle and majesty of discipleship in the Lord's true Church? Are we ever guilty of being complacent about the greatest gift we can be offered in this life? The Savior Himself taught, If you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. We believe that this Church is more than just a good place to go on Sundays and learn how to be a good person. It is more than just a lovely Christian social club where we can associate with people of good moral standing. It is not just a great set of ideas that parents can teach their children at home so they will be responsible, nice people. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is infinitely more than all of these things. Think for just a minute about the profound claims we make as a religion. We believe that the same Church Jesus Christ established while on the earth has been restored once again by a prophet called of God in our time, and that our leaders hold the same power and authority to act in God's name that ancient apostles held. It is called the priesthood of God. We claim that through this restored authority we can receive saving ordinances, such as baptism, and enjoy the purifying and refining gift of the Holy Ghost to be with us at all times. We have apostles and prophets leading and directing this Church through priesthood keys, and we believe that God speaks to His children through these prophets. We also believe that this priesthood power makes it possible to make covenants and receive ordinances in holy temples that will someday enable us to return to the presence of God and live with Him forever. We also claim that through this power, families can be bound together for eternity when couples enter the new and everlasting covenant of marriage in sacred buildings that we believe are literally the houses of God. We believe that we can receive these saving ordinances not only for ourselves but also for our ancestors who lived on the earth without having the chance to participate in these essential saving ordinances. We believe we can perform ordinances for our ancestors by proxy in these same holy temples. We believe that through a prophet and the power of God we have received additional scriptures adding to the testimony of that of the Bi- in the Bible declaring that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. We claim that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God and the only true Church on the earth. It is called the Church of Jesus Christ because He stands at the head. It is His Church, and all these things are possible because of His atoning sacrifice. We believe that these distinguishing features can be found in no other place or religion on this earth. As good and sincere as other religions and churches are, none of them have the authority to provide the ordinance of of salvation that are available in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have a knowledge of these things, but do we believe them? If these things are true, then we have the greatest message of hope and help that the world has ever known. Believing them is a matter of eternal significance for us and for those we love. To believe, we need to get the gospel from our heads into our hearts. It is possible for us to merely go through the motions of living the gospel because it is expected or because it is the culture in which we have grown up or because it is a habit. Perhaps some have not experienced what King Benjamin's people felt following his compelling sermon. They all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. 
and also we know of their surety and truth because of the Spirit of the Lord Omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. We all need to seek to have our hearts and very natures changed so that we no longer have a desire to follow the ways of the world but to please God. True conversion is a process that takes place over a period of time and involves a willingness to exercise faith. It comes when we search the scriptures instead of the Internet. It comes when we are obedient to the commandments of God. Conversion comes when we serve those around us. It comes from earnest prayer, regular temple attendance, and faithfully fulfilling our God-given responsibilities. It takes consistency and daily effort. I am often asked, what is the greatest challenge our our youth face today? I answer that I believe it is the ever-present influence of the great and spacious building in their lives. If the Book of Mormon was written specifically for our day, then surely we cannot miss the relevance for all of us of the messages in Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life and the effect of those pointing fingers and taunting from the great and spacious building. What is most heartrending to me is the description of those who have already fought their way through the mists of darkness on the straight and narrow path, have clung to the rod of iron and have reached their goal, and have begun tasting of the pure and delicious fruit of the tree of life. Then the scripture says that those finely dressed people in the great and spacious building were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit. And after they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. These verses describe those of us who already have the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, whether we were born into it or had to fight our way through mists of darkness to find it. We have tasted of this fruit, which is most precious and most desirable and has the potential to bring us eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. We only need to keep feasting and not heed those who would make fun of our beliefs or those who delight to create doubts or those who find fault with Church leaders and doctrine. It is a choice we make daily to choose faith over doubt. Elder M. Russell Ballard has urged us to stay in the boat Use your life jackets and hold on with both hands. As members of the Lord's true Church, we are already on the boat. We don't have to go searching through the philosophies of the world for truth that will give us comfort, help, and direction to get us safely through the trials of life. We already have it. Just as Ethan's mother could examine her long-held beliefs and declare confidently in a moment of crisis, I do believe it. So can we. I bear witness that our membership in the Lord's kingdom is a gift of immeasurable value. I testify that the blessings and peace the Lord has in store for those who are obedient and faithful exceed anything the human mind can comprehend. I leave this testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years ago, our daughter and son-in-law were asked to team-teach a primary class of five active four-year-old little boys. Our daughter was the designated teacher and our son-in-law the designated enforcer, doing their best to maintain a sense of calm amid occasional chaos in order to teach gospel principles to the children. During one especially rough class, after a number of warnings to an energetic little boy, our son-in-law escorted the four-year-old out of the classroom. Once outside the room and about to talk to the little boy about his behavior and the need to find his parents, the little boy stopped our son-in-law before he could say a word and with his hand up in the air in great emotion blurted out, Sometimes, sometimes it's just hard for me to think about Jesus. In our journey through mortality, As glorious as our intended destination may be, and as exhilarating as the journey may prove, we will all be subject to trials and sorrow along the way. 
Elder Joseph B. Worthland taught, the dial on the wheel of sorrow eventually points to each of us. At one time or another, everyone must experience sorrow. No one is exempt. The Lord in His wisdom does not shield anyone from grief or sadness. However, our ability to travel this road in peace is, in large part, dependent on whether or not we, too, have a hard time thinking about Jesus. Peace of mind, peace of conscience, and peace of heart is not determined by our ability to avoid trials, sorrow, or heartache. Despite our sincere pleas, not every storm will change course, not every infirmity will be healed, and we may not fully understand every doctrine, principle, or practice taught by prophets, seers, and revelators. Nevertheless, we have been promised peace with the condition attached. In the Gospel of John, the Savior taught that despite the tribulations of life, we can be of good cheer, we can be of good hope, and we need not fear because He declared, In me ye might have peace. Faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice is and forever will be the first principle of the Gospel and the foundation upon which our hope for peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come is built. To assist us in our search for peace amidst the daily challenges of life, we have been given a simple pattern to keep our thoughts focused on the Savior, who said, Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my Spirit, and you shall have peace in me. I am Jesus Christ. Learn, listen, and walk. Three steps with a promise. First, learn of me. In Isaiah we read, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. In the ever-increasing number of temples dotting the earth, we learn of Jesus Christ and his role in the Father's plan as the creator of this world, as our Savior and Redeemer, and as the source of our peace. President Monson has taught, The world can be a challenging and difficult place in which to live. As you and I go to the holy houses of God, as we remember the covenants we make within, we will be more able to bear every trial and to overcome each temptation. In this sacred sanctuary, we will find peace. During a state conference assignment a few years ago while serving in South America, I met a couple that was grieving at the recent death of their infant son. It was in an interview during the course of the conference that I first met with Brother Tumiri and learned of his loss. As we spoke, he shared that not only was he deeply saddened by the death of his son, but that he was devastated at the thought of never seeing him again. He explained that as relatively new members of the Church, they had saved enough money to attend the temple just one time prior to the birth of their little boy, where they had been sealed as a couple and to their two daughters. He then described how they had been saving money for a return trip to the temple, but hadn't yet been able to take their little boy in order to be sealed to him as well. Recognizing a possible misunderstanding, I explained that he would indeed see his son again if he remained faithful, because the sealing ordinance that had bound him to his wife and daughters was also sufficient to bind him to his son, who had been born in the covenant. Amazed, he asked if this was really true, and when I confirmed that it was, he then asked if I would be willing to speak with his wife, who had been inconsolable during the two weeks since their son's death. Sunday afternoon following the conference, I was able to meet with Sister Tumiri and explain this glorious doctrine to her as well. With the pain of her loss still fresh, but now with a glimmer of hope, she tearfully asked, Will I really be able to hold my little boy in my arms again? Is he really mine forever? I assured her that as she kept her covenants, the sealing power found in the temple, effective because of the authority of Jesus Christ, would indeed allow her to be with her son again and hold him in her arms. Sister Tumiri, though heartbroken by the death of her son, left our meeting with tears of gratitude and filled with peace because of the sacred ordinances of the temple made possible by our Savior and Redeemer. Each time we attend the temple in all that we hear, do, and say, 
in every ordinance in which we participate, and in every covenant that we make, we are pointed to Jesus Christ. We feel peace as we hear His words and learn from His example. President Hinckley taught, Go to the house of the Lord, and there feel of His Spirit, and commune with Him, and you will know a peace that you will find nowhere else. Second step, listen to my words. In the Doctrine and Covenants we read, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. From the days of Adam and down through the ages to our current prophet Thomas Spencer Monson, the Lord has spoken through his authorized representatives. Those who choose to listen and give heed to the words of the Lord as delivered through his prophets will find safety and peace. In the Book of Mormon, as Sister Oscarson has described, we find many examples of the importance of following prophetic counsel and standing with the prophet, including a lesson learned from Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life, found in 1 Nephi chapter 8. Never has the great and spacious building been more crowded or the noise coming from its open windows more misguided, mocking, and confusing than in our day. In this passage, we read of two groups of people and their response to the shouts from the building. Beginning in verse 26, we read, And I also cast my eyes round about, and beheld on the other side of the river of water a great and spacious building. And it was filled with people, and they were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who had come and were partaking of the fruit. And after they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them, and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. In verse 33, we read of others who had a different response to the scoffing and mocking coming from the building. The prophet Lehi explains that those in the building did point the finger of scorn at me and those that were partaking of the fruit also, but we heeded them not. A key difference between those that were ashamed, fell away, and were lost and those that did not heed the mocking from the building and stood with the prophet is found in two phrases. First, after they had tasted, and second, those that were partaking. The first group had arrived at the tree, stood for a time with the prophet, but only tasted the fruit. By not continuing to eat, they allowed the taunting from the building to affect them, drawing them away from the prophet and into forbidden paths where they were lost. In contrast to those who tasted and wandered off were those who were found continuously partaking of the fruit. These individuals ignored the commotion from the building, stood by the prophet, and enjoyed the accompanying safety and peace. Our commitment to the Lord and His servants cannot be a part-time commitment. If so, we leave ourselves vulnerable to those who seek to destroy our peace. As we listen to the Lord through His authorized servants, we stand in holy places and cannot be moved. The adversary offers counterfeit solutions that may appear to provide answers but take us even further from the peace we seek. He offers a mirage that has the appearance of legitimacy and safety, but ultimately, like the great and spacious building, will collapse, destroying all who seek peace within its walls. Truth is found in the simplicity of a primary song. Words of a prophet Keep the commandments. In this there is safety and peace. Third step, walk in the meekness of my spirit. However far we may wander from the path, the Savior invites us to return and walk with Him. This invitation to walk with Jesus Christ is an invitation to accompany Him to Gethsemane, and from Gethsemane to Calvary, and from Calvary to the Garden Tomb. It is an invitation to observe and apply His great atoning sacrifice whose reach is as individual as it is infinite. It is an invitation to repent, to draw upon His cleansing power and to grasp His loving, outstretched arms. It is an invitation to be at peace. We have all felt at some time in our lives the pain and heartache associated with sin and transgression. For if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, though our sins be as scarlet— as we apply the Atonement of Jesus Christ and walk with Him through sincere repentance, they shall be white as snow. Though we have been weighed down with guilt, we shall obtain peace. 
Alma the Younger was compelled to confront his sins when visited by an angel of the Lord. He described his experience in these words, My soul was harrowed up to the greatest degree and racked with all my sins. Yea, I saw that I had rebelled against my God and that I had not kept His holy commandments. As serious as his sins were, and in the midst of this ordeal, he continues, I remembered also to have heard my father prophesying to the people concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, a Son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me. And never, until I did cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, did I receive a remission of my sins. But behold, I did cry unto him, and I did find peace to my soul. Like Alma, we too will find peace to our soul as we walk with Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and apply his healing power in our lives. The peace we all seek requires more than a desire. It requires us to act by learning of him, by listening to his words, and by walking with him. We may not have the ability to control all that happens around us, but we can control how we apply the pattern for peace that the Lord has provided, a pattern that makes it easy to think often about Jesus. I testify that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that only through Him can we obtain true peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. On a signal from the conductor, the congregation will stand and join the choir in singing, Rejoice, the Lord is King. After the singing, we will hear from Elders D. Todd Christofferson and Quentin L. Cook of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The choir will then sing, Press Forward, Saints. This is the 186th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're listening to the 186th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL-FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.
I speak today of fathers. Fathers are fundamental in the divine plan of happiness, and I want to raise a voice of encouragement for those who are striving to fill well that calling. To praise and encourage fatherhood and fathers is not to shame or discount anyone. I simply focus today on the good that men can do in the highest of masculine roles, husband and father. David Blankenhorn, the author of Fatherless America, has observed, Today, American society is fundamentally divided and ambivalent about the fatherhood idea. Some people do not even remember it. Others are offended by it. Others, including more than a few family scholars, neglect it or disdain it. Many others are not especially opposed to it, nor are they especially committed to it. Many people wish we could act on it, but believe that our society simply no longer can or will. As a Church, we believe in fathers. We believe in the ideal of the man who puts his family first. We believe that by divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. We believe that in their complementary family duties, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. We believe that far from being superfluous, fathers are unique and irreplaceable. Some see the good in fatherhood in social terms as something that obligates men to their offspring, impelling them to be good citizens and to think about the needs of others supplementing maternal investment in children with paternal investment in children. In short, the key for men is to be fathers. The key for children is to have fathers. and The key for society is to create fathers. While these considerations are certainly true and important, we know that fatherhood is much more than a social construct or the product of evolution. The role of father is of divine origin beginning with a father in heaven, and in this mortal sphere with Father Adam. The perfect divine expression of fatherhood is our Heavenly Father. His character and attributes include abundant goodness and perfect love. His work and glory are the development of happiness and the eternal life of His children. Fathers in this fallen world can claim nothing comparable to the majesty on high, but at their best, they are striving to emulate Him, and they indeed labor in His work. They are honored with a remarkable and sobering trust. For men, fatherhood exposes us to our own weaknesses and our need to improve. Fatherhood requires sacrifice, but it is a source of incomparable satisfaction, even joy. Again, the ultimate model is our Heavenly Father, who so loved us, His spirit children, that He gave us His only begotten Son for our salvation and exaltation. Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Fathers manifest that love as they lay down their lives day by day, laboring in the service and support of their families. Perhaps the most essential of a father's work is to turn the hearts of his children to their Heavenly Father. If by his example as well as his words a father can demonstrate what fidelity to God looks like in day-to-day -day living, that father will have given his children the key to peace in this life and eternal life in the world to come. A father who reads scripture to and with his children acquaints them with the voice of the Lord. We find in the scriptures a repeated emphasis on the parental obligation to teach one's children. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. And they shall also teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. In 1833, the Lord reprimanded Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams, members of the First Presidency, 
for inadequate attention to the duty of teaching their children. You have not taught your children light and truth according to the commandments, and that wicked one hath power as yet over you, and this is the cause of your affliction. Fathers are to teach God's law and works anew to each generation, as the psalmist declared, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known unto their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should then arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. Certainly teaching the gospel is a shared duty between fathers and mothers, but the Lord is clear that He expects fathers to lead out in making it a high priority. And let's remember that informal conversations, working and playing together and listening, are important elements of teaching. The Lord expects fathers to help shape their children, and children want and need a model. I myself was blessed with an exemplary father. I recall that when I was a boy of about 12, my father became a candidate for the city council in our rather small community. He did not mount an extensive election campaign. All I remember was that Dad had my brothers and me distribute copies of a flyer door-to-door, urging people to vote for Paul Christofferson. There were a number of adults that I handed a flyer to who remarked that Paul was a good and honest man and that they would have no problem voting for him. My young boy heart swelled with pride in my father. It gave me confidence and a desire to follow in his footsteps. He was not perfect, no one is, but he was upright and good and an aspirational example for a son. Discipline and correction are part of teaching. As Paul said, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But in discipline, a father must exercise particular care, lest there be anything, even approaching abuse, which is never justified. When providing correction, a father's motivation must be love and his guide, the Holy Spirit, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love toward him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy, that he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. Discipline in the divine pattern is not so much about punishing as it is about helping a loved one along the path to self-mastery. The Lord has said that all children have claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age. Breadwinning is a consecrated activity. Providing for one's family, although it generally requires time away from the family, is not inconsistent with fatherhood. It's the essence of being a good father. Working and family are overlapping domains. This, of course, does not justify a man who neglects his family for his career or, at the other extreme, one who will not exert himself and is content to shift his responsibility to others. In the words of King Benjamin, You will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked, neither will you suffer that they transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel one with another. But you'll teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. You'll teach them to love one another and to serve one another. We recognize the agony of men who are unable to find ways and means adequately to sustain their families. There's no shame for those who at a given moment, despite their best efforts, cannot fulfill all the duties and functions of fathers. Disability, death, or other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation. Extended families should lend support when needed. Loving the mother of his children and showing that love are two of the best things a father can do for his children. It reaffirms and strengthens the marriage that is the foundation of their family life and security. Some men are single fathers, foster fathers, or stepfathers. Many of them strive mightily and do their very best in an often difficult role, 
We honor those who do all that can be done in love, patience, and self-sacrifice to meet individual and family needs. It should be noted that God Himself entrusted His only begotten Son to a foster father. Surely some of the credit goes to Joseph for the fact that as Jesus grew, He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Regrettably, due to death, abandonment, or divorce, some children don't have fathers living with them. Some may have fathers who are physically present but emotionally absent or, in other ways, inattentive or non-supportive. We call on all fathers to do better and to be better. We call on media and entertainment outlets more often to portray devoted and capable fathers who truly love their wives and intelligently guide their children instead of the bumblers and buffoons or the guys who cause problems, as fathers are all too frequently depicted. To children whose family situation is troubled, we say, you yourself are no less for that. Challenges are at times an indication of the Lord's trust in you. He can help you directly and through others to deal with what you face. You can become the generation, perhaps the first in your family, where the divine patterns